Hello and welcome. You're listening to Lore and Legend with your hosts, Rick Scott and Sebastian O'Dell. Every week we bring you a legendary tale inspired by the rich traditions of world folklore and mythology. This series of Lore and Legend is called Strange Britannia, exploring dark and lesser-known tales of the British overworld and its hidden beings. In our last episode, Thomas the Rhymer found himself captured after kissing a beautiful stranger under the Eildon tree. In this episode, he relates the terrible history of a man who disturbs the midnight revels of Britain's hidden folk. This is the curse of Pantanas. She rode upon her milk-white steed, and I held her waist behind. And I saw neither sun nor moon, but the roaring sea was nigh. You think you know this land of Britain, Tom, said the Queen, but I say you do not, for it is far older and more ancient than conceived in the legends of men. And as they rode, she pointed out to Thomas the hollow mouths of caves in the mountains, from inside of which came the sound of a deep and mournful music. And she told Thomas the dreadful tales of mortal men who heard this music and could not resist. For the most part, the people of Glamorgan were not overly troubled by the fair folk. They were wary, certainly, for such creatures are known to play tricks on good Christian folk. The people kept well clear of the rings where the fair folk danced, where their music could be heard playing at night. For any mortal who ventures within a fairy ring immediately becomes vulnerable to otherworldly charms. Tales were told of those who had the misfortune to step within a fairy ring and be caught up in those dances. The music was wonderful, and the newcomer would share in the mirth and the laughter of the fairies, spinning round and round the ring in a perfect circle, enthralled by the music, but unable to escape unless rescued from outside. But the sound of that music, when it echoed from the hillsides of Glamorgan at night, was utterly enchanting, and even the most lonesome shepherd could not fail to be filled with joy when he heard that sound. And having fairies around could be good fortune. If you did a good turn by them, they might do one by you. So the people accepted the presence of the fair folk. These were people who needed some hope for good fortune now and then. The farmer of Pantanus, on the other hand, was nothing short of enraged by the other folk and the rings upon which they danced. The music would keep him awake at night when he wanted sleep. And more than anything, those rings grew on his land, in his fields where his crops should be growing. People told him not to mess with things he didn't understand, but this would only make the farmer angrier, and he would shake his fist and swear to have his lands rid of the fairies once and for all. And then one morning in spring, the farmer was out ploughing his fields and sowing them with corn. And he came by one of the fairy rings, and the angry impulse seized him again. And without much further thought, he ran his plough straight across the ring, 
chewing up the ring and driving Tilda across what remained of it. He waited a moment. Nothing happened. No terrifying consequences befell him. So he continued to plough. He ploughed up all of the earth of that place until there was no trace of a fairy ring left at all, but a patch of earth that looked the same as the rest. And then he went on to the other rings, which he'd been steering away from until now, and he treated them to the same fate. When the farmer of Pantanus returned home that night, all his fields were finally as they should be, all ready to grow his corn. He was greatly pleased with himself. The next day, he was walking back to his house on the road that ran alongside his land, when he was stopped by a tiny man in a red coat. The man looked up at him with unquenchable fury burning in his eyes. He unsheathed the small sword and pointed it up at the farmer. Vengeance cometh! And then the man vanished. The farmer was unsettled, but nothing more happened, not that day or the next. It seemed that this man had come to do nothing but bear an empty threat and any nerves the farmer had about the incident wore off. As spring turned to summer, and his crops began to grow, he quite forgot about the strange meeting on the road. And summer wore on. His fields were filled with wheat. His sleep was no longer disturbed, no strange folk were seen dancing on his land, and he thought happily of the extra money he would earn from that little bit of spare wheat, and all the things he might buy with it. As summer turned to autumn, however, there was something strange in the air. The farmer began to come home earlier in the evenings, for he was uneasy being outside in the darkness, even in his own fields. More than once, he felt as though the ground beneath him was shaking. He would begin to edge away, but then everything would be still, and he would wonder if he had imagined it. Then one night... When he lay in bed, the ground shook as though a mighty earthquake had taken it. He was not uncertain of this, as it had woken himself and his wife, who now cowered in fear at the edge of the bed. A disturbing noise rose in accompaniment. A humming sound, though without melody, just a horrible, ominous reverberation, shaking the air even as the rumbling shook the earth. The noise grew until it became deafening, and then it began to die down, and as it did, the ground fell still once more. But in the resting air, a loud voice said, The farmer climbed out of bed and ran to his window to look outside. There was no one there. But where glorious fields of corn had stood that evening, there were now only ashes, the length and breadth of each field. The fairies had burned the harvest. He ran outside in anguish and knelt down beside the dying embers. Once again, the man in the red coat appeared and stalked towards him. Vengeance cometh, he said again. It but beginneth. No, no, please, the farmer cried and cried. 
please have mercy on a foolish old farmer and his innocent wife. The man looked at him. What has been done cannot be undone. The vengeance that was called upon you was called by the king of fairy himself, and it cannot be taken back. And with that, the man was gone once more. The farmer's wife appeared at the door to the house, and he looked up into her face. He couldn't stand to see her like that, filled with pain, confusion, and fear. He couldn't stand to know that it was all his fault. And so, the air still thick with smoke and the stench of scorched earth, the farmer fought his way down the hill, through the fumes that clawed at his eyes, to the spot where the nearest fairy ring used to stand. He cried out, Have it back! I don't care! Just please, no more punishment! Nothing happened. So he started to kick aside the embers until a clear path of earth was made. He went round, kicking more and more aside until he made the shape of a ring once more. He went to the other spots where the fairy rings had stood, and he cleared them too. Then he went back to the house, and as his wife looked on in bewilderment, the farmer fetched bowls of milk, and he placed one into the centre of each circle. Nothing happened. No little man appeared. No disembodied voice called out to him. So the farmer went back inside. But the next day, as he was once more on the road beside his fields now filled with ash, the man in the red coat appeared once more. The curse of Pantanus cannot be recalled, he said. But since you have recanted your trespass and proven yourself willing to help us, the king has agreed that the curse shall not fall upon you. The farmer fell to his knees and began proffering thanks after thanks. Be warned, the man said severely. Vengeance will yet come. Many years may pass. But vengeance will come upon the house of Pantanus. Years later, the farmer would swear that he had tried to object before the man vanished. But in reality, his relief was far too great to be caring about any future generations. The fairies returned to the fields. The farmer lost that little bit of productive land. But music and dances once more came to gladden the fields of Pantanus, and the farmer and his wife lived out the rest of their days in peace. This peace carried on through to the end of their lives and into the lives of their children. When their children were old enough to understand, the farmer sat them down and told them of the curse of Pantanus. The vengeance of the fairy king that could not be lifted. And so it became known, the story that was passed from generation to generation. But as the years wore on, it was talked about with less gravity, with less fear and foreboding. Eventually, it became little more than an old wives' tale 
No one seriously expected anything to come of it. And then a hundred years had passed. The heir to Pantanus now was a strong young man named Madoc, and as well as running quite a successful farm, Madoc was soon to be wed to his sweetheart Teleri. The day of his wedding was drawing near, and he was so excited that he barely noticed the unseasonably cold weather, and was untroubled by the mists that would fall and last for days at a time. Madoc was overjoyed when the day of his wedding came, and all rejoiced with him. For it was to be a fine wedding, and two fine families. No one present at the ceremony was old enough to remember that it had been exactly one hundred years to the day Madoc's ancestor had first ploughed up that fairy ring. With the happy chatter that was now filling the church, no one noticed the droning hum that was building up outside. No one noticed that the sky outside was growing darker, or that the mists were coming in closer to the church. It was only when it became too loud to hear each other that people fell silent and looked out through the windows. The hum got louder and louder, and the whole hall was now waiting to hear what would come next. Then the hum stopped, and a voice from outside boomed. The time for vengeance has come. Madoc was determined to see who dared disturb his wedding in this way, and he ran outside the church. He could see nothing, for all was dark, and the mist came to just a few feet from the church. And then the voice came again, though Madoc could not see where it came from. And then the darkness was gone. The mists rolled back, and Maddox could once again see down the hill. There was no humming in the air, just a soft washing of the stream. And Maddox began to hear music. He couldn't hear it very well, so he walked forward to catch it a little better. It seemed to be coming from the rocks of the nearby ridge and the melody was sweet and lilting, so Madoc walked on until he reached the ridge. Following what was quite possibly the most beautiful music Madoc had ever heard, he came to the mouth of a cave, and this is where it seemed to be emerging from, and yet every time he walked closer, the music seemed to get further away. He stepped into the cave, it retreated again. Madoc had by now forgotten all about the wedding he had left behind. He just wanted a chance to hear that music more clearly, so he followed it further and further back into the far recesses of the cave. He was entranced by the music that filled the air around him, but he could never quite hear it clearly enough, so on he went. All of a sudden, the music ceased. Madoc was stood deep into this cave, and suddenly he remembered his wedding, his family, his bride. He must have been gone an hour or more, 
so he quickly retraced his steps and left the cave. He ran back up to the church, only to find that it was empty, and Madoc realised he had missed his own wedding. Anxiously, he hurried home to apologise to his parents and any guests who might have made their way back there. He was thinking of nothing else other than the embarrassment and the shame when he burst through the door, and he stopped dead, for he was face to face with a man who looked just like him, as though Madoc were looking into a mirror. "'Who dares enter without invitation?' the man demanded, and Madoc became disoriented. He didn't know how to respond, for he did not know this man, and he had not expected to have to explain who he was. But as he looked around, something was wrong. The house didn't look as he remembered. It was poorer, more barren, and this made him hesitate as he went to respond. But, but, but this is my home, he said. I am Maddox. The man advanced on him. I don't know who you are, he said, but the name you claim is not welcome here. For the only Maddock I know is he who brought ruin on this house. He who disappeared on his own wedding day and left a betrothed behind. Betrothed who wept ceaselessly for his absence and would do nothing each day but pine for his return. Who never looked after her own son, a son born in shame out of wedlock. Since then, this house and my line has known nothing but ill fortune and poverty for a hundred years. So do not say again that you are Maddock. With that, Maddock knew only grief. Grief for Teleri, for the life that he had given her. Grief for his son. Grief for his parents. But most of all, grief for himself, for all that he had missed out on. And he began to weep. He wept so hard that he had to sit down, and the man who had spoken so sternly just now began to feel guilty and more than a little confused. He leant down to comfort Maddock by patting him on the shoulder, but he lay only a single hand on Maddock when the weeping man turned without warning to dust. And seven years they went and passed, and I on earth was never seen. And I was told to never speak these things that I had seen. Um, I very much enjoyed your, your fairy voices. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you choose that tale? Um, the scene at the church, I think. Um, because there's a lot of, of stories that have a sort of 
this thing happens and then this person responds to it in this way and you know there are moments of peril and the and but the the supernatural elements that come into it um seem to sort of just kind of be accepted yes there are strange other folk who lead you off into the, the hidden world beneath the hill or whatever it is um the, the i mean I've, I've adapted the scene at the church to really emphasize these bits but it's this kind of thing where the darkness suddenly comes down. You know, you get this kind of break from reality um, as as this very clearly otherworldly power as represented by the disembodied voice which booms across the hillside with no, you know, with no source. Um, it, it, you know, visits this uh, unbreakable curse upon the family. I think that appeals to my imagination uh, a bit more. That kind of um, sinister, powerful forces um, at work as opposed to the sort of slightly diabolical machinations of, of nefarious individuals. So I think that was one of the reasons I chose that story. In the original story, um, the... Uh, it's not a wedding or a wedding is soon to come up but it takes place actually on in Christmas so I think in in Welsh law one of the most kind of liminal times in which the earth is most vulnerable to invasion from the the other world people are sort of most vulnerable to its powers um, but I wanted to accentuate the thing that Maddock was losing in emphasizing the wedding that was to come as you know a central event so that when he comes back you don't just think oh yes what a sad thing it must have been you're already kind of invested in that person and the the the, the story of their life that they leave behind we wanted to do this podcast about the hidden people the the other folk you know this the supernatural race that's a huge part of English folklore. Yeah. But there were some reservations about that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, specifically re regarding the use of the word fairy, even though it's a very convenient catch-all term for the otherworldly beings uh, that we're talking about, there is a sort of fairly common misconception about what fairies supposed to look like. They call it the, the Tinkerbell problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> I actually wanted to talk about Tinkerbell because I, I was reading up about uh, specifically to, to, to look into this. And Tinkerbell is so cool because in the uh, J.M. Barry, Tinkerbell is actually a tinker. Like literally fixes pots and pans. Right. In much the same way you might imagine, like a brownie would, and you know, has the sort of big swings of temper from helpful and uh, proffering advice and guidance to you know being in a massive hut, which fits with the sort of um, brownie kind, sort of brownie hobgoblin mould of um, you know, Scottish folklore, but. Um, Already in the J.M. Barry, you can see 
like a certain amount of the um, the softening of of berries, but it's not quite the pretty little um, effete pixie creature that we sort of commonly think of today. Specifically, when we think of tinker wings and glitter, yeah. <laughs> The name fairy in, in, in folklore covers actually a huge range of different supernatural creatures, mm. which often don't actually have a fixed identity in many ways. You know, some of these words are interchangeable. Sometimes if you get several versions of a story, you can see the words that are actually being used, you know, whether somebody's a sorceress or a witch or being fairies or imps. Mm. Or um, or elves or that kind of thing can change from telling to telling. Yeah. So there's a kind of like almost sort of indeterminate shape shifting quality to all these creatures. And, yeah. And what are they actually, and what do they look like? Which kind of leaves a really fertile space for the imagination, which makes it a shame, really, that that there's such a dominant view of fairies as this very kind of cutesy kind of thing yeah because actually the whole point of fairies and fae is that they're actually quite potentially threatening and dark you know well there's i mean we've co- we cover a few of the quite dark and terrifying fairy creatures in in the podcast um but there's one that i was uh, looking up uh red caps who are so called because they dip their caps in the blood of their human victims. And that's why they walk around with their hats on. Banshees. Banshees are a species of fairy creature. Then there's a Black Anis is a famous fairy from um, uh, the Midlands and essentially matches the description of a witch who eats children, much like the witch in Hansel and Gretel. Um, but I think people nowadays would not think of something like that as a fairy. Mm. No. A fairy, for, for a lot of people, is quite a specific sort of creature. And as you said, fairy is, in, in stories, quite a, quite a wide-ranging concept. And it's, as I understand the etymology, it's because the, um, the word fairy merely meant enchanted. Right. And it originally was not a noun but an adjective to describe a kind of creature. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. There are characters in these stories who are a witch or a sorceress. Mm. We would probably commonly draw a line between, oh, uh, a human who deals with that world Mm. and uh, a creature that is of that world. And that line is actually not very clear in a lot of these stories. Well, there's particularly in... um uh, and there's the fairly common, uh, commonly known Tamlin, you know, through the, the Fairfoot Convention of Steel Ice Found songs. Um, Tamlin is described as an elf in, elf in grey. Um, and, um, when you, uh, when, as the story goes on, you get the backstory of Tamlin, which is that he was an earthly knight who was kidnapped, essentially, and held prisoner by the fairies. Um, but at no point in the story does he sort of disown the fairy identity. It's not that Tamlin is not a fairy, it's just that he's sort of kind of on the way there from from being human. So it is, 
yeah, it, it, it isn't it isn't a thing that you're necessarily born into. You can become hairy as time goes on. Yeah, yeah, no, I've encountered this as well, the uh, sort of the idea that uh, that it's catching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That you uh, if you enter into the world of the fairies, the fae, then you you start to take on um, a magical aura, you know, you you, you mm. become a dealer in that kind of that magic, that kind of substance. You do wonder whether that's reflective of uh, you know, the sorts of attitudes people had to strange people uh, of you know their towns and villages. You know, people who maybe went off into the forest and dealt dabbled in you know things that people thought were black and terrifying. Whether those people then got sort of described as fairy as as sorcerers and witches and things like that. Um, and it's the kind of stories that we have reflect the suspicions people have of those odd other people. Mm. Yes, well, the, uh, you know, that whole relationship between strange places, strange things, strangers, <laughs> you know, who is this person and where have they come from? <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of the depiction of the uh, the fair folk in this tale oh yeah it's it's interesting the um, the involvement of fairies in this story is actually quite similar to the way that fairies come up in Scottish folklore uh, in that if you leave them be or you know give what's give them what's allotted to them you you know you'll flourish and everything will go well your farm will succeed good fortune will be brought upon your house but if you become greedy try and take away what's rightfully theirs you know in in frequently in scottish folklore it's if you don't leave a you know a bit of the food that you have out for the brownie or the hobgoblin then it you know it can turn on you uh, in this one the farmer wants that small, those small corners of his land to be growing his crops and won't leave the requisite amount for the fairies to dance on, that they turn on him. Um, there's um, there's a Scottish tradition called the uh, Good Man's Cross, where um, you have where the 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 people of the uh, village leave a small patch of land uh, that they don't grow anything on because that's considered to be good luck because you're leaving it for the devil, as it were, um, and then the devil won't come and curse your lands. And it's it's got a similar kind of feel. You leave this land for the fairies, and they don't come and mess up your land. Um, which, yeah, there's. So it it's almost like there's there's a meeting here of the you don't break the enchanted ring because you know just by that symbolic action terrible things happen but also you don't get greedy in the taking of well all the land that you might think belongs to you. Well, I think it's very much isn't it a um, a very different conception of human beings place in the universe 
not being the sole inhabitant or the master of mm. the world and of nature, but the idea that you're actually sharing it with neighbours um, who have other interests to you yeah. and maybe more powerful than you are, in fact. Um, and uh, I suppose in a lot of you know what we would consider traditional Christian uh, theology that that's polarized into God and the devil and mm. the, the good and the bad whereas the uh, the fairy folk which kind of subsisted alongside Christianity for a long time even if the church didn't really like it and tried yeah. to assimilate all of that to the devil and the demonic yeah there's the sense that uh, there are supernatural creatures that are in some ways kind of like us or like like our relationship with our human neighbours you know mm. they're not necessarily evil but they can be if you piss them off yeah and it's about having to share resources and <laughs> it, 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 it's a really intriguing thought isn't it if uh, the owner of you know a patch of oil that had been discovered was uh, told very sternly by everyone around him and by his employees digging up the oil that they had to leave 10% for the selkies in the, in the sea or something like that um, because, because that, that in a sense is what the farmer of Pantanas represents he represents the, the person who it's my land I bought it, it it's all mine I you know the, I am the as you say the sole master the sole uh, arbiter of what happens to the things that are on my land and I think that there's in that sense of what is owed to the fairies and what you don't you know what, what you don't mess around with even on your own land is that kind of notion that you there are that property ownership is subordinate to the just laws of how you behave and treat the land that you're on and there's a higher authority yeah so you can, you know, you, you, you count yourself lucky that you have the land that you do. Um, and if you, you know, treat it well, then you may continue to do so. But if you don't, bad shit might happen to you. Yes, yeah, things like respect for nature, your dependence on it, and the sort of contingency of your own existence yeah. is expressed. In beliefs of you know about supernatural power and other agencies you know and in a sense we've lost our respect for nature almost because it doesn't come with any actual supernatural threat attached to it in our minds simply consuming all of nature without uh, respecting it does have a price and it does have a cost a very real one you know in our especially in our present day we don't have anything more immediately to fear and that's probably a problem <laughs> i suspect that one of the things with that is just that um you know in order to you know the people who possess the resources are not necessarily the people who live in that place and that means that, you know, if they do something, you know, claiming more land or resources than people think they should, you can't have, you can't have somebody 
uh, in a sort of paranoid sense be influenced by superstitious gossip I suppose um, the, the thing as well about the ideas about um, neighbours and having to share land and things is that there have been suggestions that the beliefs in fairies and the fair folk, the, the small people, is based on a, a cultural memory of, of a tribe in the past, groups that were, you know, more diminutive in stature. Next week, Child Roland to the Dark Tower came. Thomas learns a tale which may lie behind the cryptic lines spoken by the outlaw Prince Edgar in his disguise as Old Tom in Shakespeare's King Lear. You've been listening to Lauren Legend, Episode 2, The Curse of Pantanas. Our story today was interpreted and performed by Sebastian O'Dell. Music in this episode was performed by Robert Bentel and Ellie Burton. Additional music and sound effects were sourced from freesound.org and freemusicarchive.org. You can find a full list of audio credits on our website. For news about upcoming episodes and more info about our stories and their sources in world folklore, find us at www.lawandlegend.co.uk or follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Of Law and Legend. If you like what you're hearing and you want to hear more, uh, there are a number of ways that you can support us here at Law and Legend. We're committed to keeping the episodes in the series free of adverts. Please consider supporting the podcast through our creators page on Patreon. You can find that at www.patreon.com forward slash law and legend. Financial support enables us to keep on telling our stories and will empower us to develop more creative content for you, our listeners, in the future. If you can't afford to support us regularly but want to drop a few coins in the hat, you can do so using our PayPal link at paypal.me forward slash law and legend. And you can find all of those links on our website.